Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Sharp Tech. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Thompson. Ben, how you doing? Doing okay, doing okay. Not sure what time it is, not sure where I am, but ready to podcast, as always. Yeah, you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. You look great on the stream here. I don't I th- know I think how that's you're the low quality. Coherent. I think that's the low-quality uh, camera, to be clear. But. <laughs> there you go. Well, you know, we'll take it. Welcome back to the USA, and Ben... Welcome to Headset Week. All eyes on Cupertino for the next couple of days no, here. Meta is in Menlo Park. I think you got your cities wrong. Oh, boy. There you go. Yes, we are going to talk about Meta and the Quest 3 later in the episode. But Apple is set to unveil a new VR headset at its Worldwide Developers Conference on Monday. Later in the week, we're going to recap the event in detail. Ben, you're going to be on campus for it. But for the first episode here, I figure we could just provide a little table setter for everybody and then hit some NVIDIA follow-up at the end. Does that rundown work for you? Sounds good. Let's do it. Okay, so I'll lay out a few general details for people. These come courtesy of Mark Gurman at Bloomberg. He writes... Apple's first headset will be an ultra-premium device made of glass, carbon fiber, and aluminum. It looks like a high-tech pair of ski goggles, features a new magnetic charger for power, has a curved front with an external screen to show a wearer's facial expressions and eyes, and several external cameras to enable video pass-through, depth sensing, and hand control. The main use cases will be communication, video consumption, wellness, gaming, and productivity. One person who worked on the device called it part status symbol and part future of the computer. Apple initially hoped it could sell about 3 million units per year out of the gate, but it's pared back those estimates to about 1 million, then to 900,000 units. By comparison, the company sells more than 200 million iPhones a year. An unbelievable statistic. Um, So, Ben, question number one for you. As I look around my office, I've got a pair of Google Glasses over here, several Quest headsets, the Microsoft HoloLens, all of them sadly collecting dust, all of them reminders that lots of people over the past 40 years have tried and failed to make VR products useful and popular. Um, why, given that history, do you think Apple wanted to enter this space? Well, I mean, if we're just lying on this episode, I mean, you should give me a heads up to start. Um, yeah, you know me. I've always been a big VR guy. I'm psyched for this week. No, the reason why Apple is entering the space is because they want to deliver on the use cases of communication, video consumption, wellness, gaming, and productivity. It seems pretty obvious. I mean, yeah, of course. that list cracks me up because it's like literally just a grab bag of like, what sort of stuff can you do with a computer or with a phone? And let's mm. put that on the list, uh, which I think speaks to both the risk and the opportunity in some respect. I mean, the the risk is who knows? <laughs> who knows what this is going to be used for? I mean, the, I would say the Quest 3 to date, you saw that and we'll get to meta in a little bit. But it would, this unveiling was also part of like their big 
video of like all the applications you can get, most of which are all sort of games. And this is sort of a, mm-hmm. a this is actually a general springtime thing. This is usually when like the game video game developers release their sorts of things. So that was the context. So of course it was more games. But gaming has been sort of the you know one potential use case. I've been intrigued by the possibility of meetings because I do think the sense of presence is sort of a real thing, but the answer is no one knows for sure, including Apple. And so that does raise the question of why build this, and the answer is because that's how progress happens, right? If, if you said you had to wait to see everything a computer can be used for, would we have ever gotten a computer? If you have to see everything a smartphone can be used for, like you go back to the 2007 introduction of the iPhone, Steve Jobs says, we're introducing three new products today, a widescreen touchscreen iPod. Everyone goes crazy, right? A revolutionary mobile phone. Everyone goes crazy. An internet communicator. Barely anyone claps, right? And the reality is that internet communicator basically encapsulated everything, 99% of what we use an iPhone for. And even like the iPod part is now like streaming, which is basically an internet communicator. That's basically the entire product. And no one then, Apple didn't know what it was, and people watching didn't even know to clap appropriately, even though that was like the actual use case. And uh, I do have a little bit of a critique, not critique, but annoyance with people like you who Mm. are just like, what's the point? What's the point? Well, what's the point of anything, right? Like like there is an impetus to sort of push forward. There's – um an Apple commentator named John Syracuse that makes a point that, that I enjoy when, you know, I think he, with the most recent version of the iMac or no, it was an older version of an iMac came out. It was much thinner than the previous one. And people are like, why are you making a desktop computer thinner? It's going on your desktop. Who cares? And his point was, look, if you don't sort of keep pushing forward, you're never going to develop the capabilities and the abilities to actually make a meaningful breakthrough, whether it's with this product or with another one, there is value in progress sort of on its own when it comes to this sort of technological sort of stuff. So big picture, you can see a future where some sort of headset is tremendously valuable, right? Mm -hmm. Like you mentioned, I'm on the road. I can imagine a future where I could have an expansive workspace, which I find to be very beneficial and useful. And you, I could get my work done. Maybe I don't even need to carry a computer or whatever it might be. I mean, like you probably do for typing or or all those sorts of things. But I like I, I'm, I I'm happy I to start default... podcasting in headsets moving forward. If Apple wants, no, to you're not happy to do that. That's a lie. You're making yeah, that, you're making look, that up. <laughs> I'll give it a couple weeks at least. Let's see where it leads. You know what I mean? No, I hear you in terms of pushing boundaries, and I'm interested in what they bring to the table. In part because Apple's track record is so strong across all their hardware. And that's where I look at this and it it does seem like a risk given right. the history of some of the hardware we've seen over the last 10 years that's come and gone without really making a dent. And Apple, the reason people are so excited about this is because Apple's batting average is like unbelievably high. And so to see them swing for this particular fence is pretty interesting because, again, just nobody's been able to crack the code thus far. Yeah, I I think that's an excellent observation. And and there is an aspect to this where 
I do admire Apple shipping this, and you put like the the numbers in there. This is not going to sell well. There's, it's going to be like fodder for you know criticism and all. Apple finally shipped a flop X Y Z. Like there's a bit where the easiest thing is just sort of sit on your laurels. You're not going to get criticized for it. You're you're going to keep, keep making lots of money. You could say, oh, let's let someone else figure out the market and we'll come in. But they think it's ready to go, and so they're going to ship it. And I think that's great. I think that's that that's sort of admirable and. It is sort of big picture the role Apple plays in the tech ecosystem. Like at at the end of the day, one of the things that's just sort of odd about meta pushing in this space is we've talked about this. They're a horizontal services company. Like like getting into hardware is just sort of a weird fit for them. And Mm -hmm. it's like, why would like why would you do this when Apple could do it much better? Well, that would not be beneficial if Apple was not actually doing it better. And maybe one of the greatest benefits of Meta being out there is Apple does feel like it needs to get a move on. It does need to sort of start shipping. And the reality is there's so much you learn and discover once it's actually out in the market. And this, by the way, includes what you actually use it for. I mean, you go back to the Apple Watch, the, the most recent big Apple announcement, and they listed a number of things that could be used for. And a lot of it was about communication and they had a whole app store and all this sorts of thing. And one of the items was sort of health and fitness, but it was one of a list of them. Yeah, It turned out and it took them a little bit to figure this out. That was it. Health and fitness. People get out Apple Watch, they get notifications, and they use it to like track their it's, steps and their it's exercise. It's the only time I've ever considered buying an Apple Watch is when I got super into running a couple years ago and wanted to track my distance and track the time. I wound up not actually going that direction because I didn't want like an extra touch point where I was going to be connected to digital life and have to get notifications all day. But the health aspects of it were the only time I looked at that and said, oh, that might have enough utility to justify the cost. Yeah, Does I, Apple- I, I, by the way, I, you know, for all my critique of you of, of uh, you know, being a liar about all your tech products in your house, that's why I don't wear an Apple Watch personally. Like I am like, I don't need I really don't need notifications on my wrist. And yes, you can turn them off and stuff, but it's actually there's not nearly enough fine grained control on what goes there and what doesn't. Um, so I'm definitely with you on that one. But, it, it, you know, it, it was just interesting to go back and you see this list of things that it's going to be used for. That's boilerplate. That's way it should be interpreted as. We, we will only know what this was used for a few years down the road when we sort of look back and say, oh, yeah, that's sort of the use case. And f- from my perspective, I like the fact Apple, by all accounts, is coming in super high end. Now, just to go back to another bit of history for Apple announcements, the mm. other big product is the iPad, which they leaked a story that was going to cost $9.99. And so Steve Jobs is up there, and he's going through it, and it's this incredible demo and, and all these sorts of things. And then he comes out, starts at $4.99, and everyone's jaw drops because <laughs> everyone had it in their head it was going to be $1,000. And so this $4.99 price, which was actually oh quite God. high – Everyone perceived it as being incredibly cheap. And so the question here is, you know, the rumor is $3,000. Is that going to actually come in much lower? But even if it doesn't, I do like Apple going more high end here. I think you're more likely to find a compelling use case. I mean, from my perspective, you know, when do I want to go to events? I want to go to an event when there's a product like this. And I can actually try it out, right? And mm-hmm. like, and so I've tried out the Quest. I've tried out the Quest Pro. My biggest frustration with both of them, particularly the Quest Pro, which was really disappointing given the price point, 
is the resolution. It's just too low resolution to be useful for work in particular. Like if you want to do that use case, like putting the screen, I, I mean, it's use, you could use it, but I, I, I personally don't, don't like it. And so if Apple is actually coming in and be super high resolution, is going to be super powerful and it's going to be super expensive and have this weird sort of battery situation, which it sounds like it's going to have. I actually like that because you want to be deficient on vectors that the progress of technology will naturally take care of, which are sort of power, efficiency, and cost. Those will come down. Uh, the, the use case is going to be the use case, and I'd rather nail that first. So I'm cheering for $3,000, not that I think it would be sell a lot, but just because I think that it opens up the aperture to discover use cases. Exactly. It's better than the alternative where you water down the product to try to appeal to a bigger audience that may never materialize anyway if the product isn't very compelling on its own, which certainly has been Meta's experience in this space. And I read somewhere that Apple's not even expecting to really make money from this particular iteration of the headset because of the cost of materials that are going into it and the limited audience that they're expecting. Yeah, to, to I, buy I, it. I think they will. I think on a unit basis, they will make money. Like they always charge include like Apple is not a company to sell sort of products at cost or below cost. Uh, so okay, I would bet good to know. Again, who knows? But my, my assumption is that they will make money on a per unit basis. But when you sort of spread out all the costs, including all the R&D and all that sort of stuff, no, this will take, you know, it'll take years to sort of pay off. But I don't so, know, that, that, that's my guess. I don't know for sure. But I, I, I have a hard time seeing Apple selling actual physical hardware. Just out of the goodness of their heart, they're just trying to push well, no, no, technology the, forward for well, all no, of us. This is a common use case. Like consoles are famously sold at a loss, particularly at the beginning of their life cycle, except for Nintendo. Nintendo always wants to sell at a profit. But like Sony and Microsoft will subsidize the consoles particularly at the beginning, because why? Mm -hmm. they're, they're selling a console for five years. So they want to have sufficient capability that the it will be useful for five years. So they will over-spec something, knowing that as they make more and more of them, the cost curve will come down. As they're selling, like when they start out, they're selling top of the line sort of hardware. Within a few years, they're selling two-year-old hardware, three-year-old hardware, uh, and then it's very cheap. And then they'll be making money then. But most importantly, they're making money on the game side because they make money not just from their own games, but also licensing for, for the other games that are on there. It's like a razor and blades sort of strategy. So that is common in tech. And, you know, I think Meta is also selling at a loss and has been selling their devices at a loss. But again, that makes sense for them because, number one, obviously they want to sort of build up the market on their platform, but also they're a social network. They want more people sort of using it. Apple's not a social company. Everything they've attempted to do socially has sort of failed beyond sort mm -hmm. of iMessage and FaceTime, which are right on top of SMS because they have a phone. And, you know, and I think that's going to be a useful thing here. But even there, like your typical Apple device, it's a one-person device, right? In Apple's core competency – is productivity like like they've traditionally been very bad at games too the fact they're dominant in games on mobile is sort of an accident of being the device people have with them everywhere not because apple is particularly sort of great at fostering a, a sort of gaming platform sure. so so my uh, so that goes into their pricing and the way sort of their pricing work so my bet personally is i think it would be in line with apple to sell a device that costs them a $1,500 to make, whatever, price it for $3,000, productivity being the key sort of uh, app, you know, sort of 
use case again mm-hmm. like the sort of like uh you which know, is stick- a really fuzzy use case but we'll allow them to get away with it for now well no it, it, productivity basically is is work that you do by yourself and yeah. uh in you know, the other one you mentioned the facetime thing again the presence thing is real it is compelling but it's fundamentally limited by how many people actually have a headset right so productivity it's a single player game but it's not like a game, right? Now, gaming, it, and I think they'll, they'll hope for the ecosystem developers who make mobile games to also make VR games. But, I mean, we'll see. We'll see, we'll, we'll see how that goes. So in terms of their business, though, are they essentially playing with house money here? Or is this actually important to their strategic future? Well, I mean, it's important to their strategic future to the extent that this is sort of a future of computing. Apple is a computing platform. But that's... That's like they don't need this future. to work. Well, no, I mean they're selling two hundred million iPhones, right? <laughs> that, okay. that, that makes them <laughs> that makes them plenty of money. But you're sort of always moving in tech, either forward or backwards. So if you're not moving forward, you're moving backwards. And so you know, I I think it is good for Apple. It's good for the company. It's what Apple does is sort of figure out these new devices, new interfaces, and push forward. And so I think that that's beneficial. I do think the big open question about this device, leaving outside of VR generally, mm-hmm. is that an obvious way to interact with this is voice and series terrible. So I think that is one of the, you know, one of the big question marks here. But as far as actually making the hardware and delivering on productivity functionality, uh, that's what Apple's very good at. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just trying to get a sense for like the stakes for the company as they roll this out. I mean, because you look at their existing businesses and they are the most successful company on earth. Yeah, well, I mean, so, all their existing businesses are relatively flat and they have been for a long time. And except for I'm services. wondering, like, do they the, need this new win here? No, not, I mean, th- th- their services is always sort of increasing sort of vector, like the app store and the Google search deal and all those sorts of things. And, you know, people who get iPhones keep iPhones. They don't switch away. So they yeah. might hold on to an iPhone longer or buy a secondhand iPhone, but they're still in the ecosystem buying goods, subscribing to things, all those sorts of things. Apple's core business is totally fine. And I personally have made this point for a very long time. I don't think the phone's going anywhere. It's an, it's like the natural endpoint of a certain course of development where it's small enough to carry around, but it's large enough to be useful. And like, like by definition, if you go in either direction, it's going to be something less, right? The watch... Mm-hmm is a great product. It's been very successful for Apple. It's not going to supplant the iPhone. It's too small. It, but that doesn't mean it's a bad product. The iPhone is just like the perfect product of all time. And yeah. so, you know, I think the watch is kind of useful as a predecessor to this v, to this VR headset in that, look, it's totally fine to build a nice business. AirPods, great business. iPhone business, no. But it's like it's supported by the iPhone and goes along with it, and that's that's fine. So eight years in, we should consider the Apple Watch a success despite the fact that it hasn't like expanded a, a whole new market for high end for like wearable tech, which is oh, well, no, sort it has. of what I was think it thrown around. Has. It has. Well, no, well, I mean, it's not an iPhone product. Like if you want to measure compared to an iPhone, it's not an iPhone, but it was ridiculous to ever expect it to be an iPhone. The reality is is Apple has expanded their business. So I mentioned the services bit. Apple has also expanded their business by selling more things to iPhone users, right? Sometimes that's selling a computer. Like people buy an iPhone and then they buy a Mac. 
Mm. Sometimes it's buying AirPods. They buy an iPhone and then they buy AirPods. Sometimes it's a watch. They buy an iPhone and then they buy a watch, right? There's not very many people that just use an Apple watch and don't start with the iPhone. The iPhone is not just the core of Apple's business, not just a cash cow, not just the foundation. And then this sort of natural endpoint I talked about, it's also sort of a platform to launch other hardware products on top of. And, you know, I, I think the watch by any metric has been hugely successful. I'm pretty sure it's the highest selling watch in the world, including whatever brand you want to include. And, you know, it, you just walk around. It's quite visible. You know, th- it reflects sort of the numbers that you see. And that and, and you, it's like helpful that like yeah. you don't need to be an iPhone level product to be a success just like AirPods. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm curious about is like how they view it in terms of just like the, the measuring stick and what they're aiming for, because I think it is a good analog to what they're trying to achieve with VR here. It's It's like is this going to be something that everyone has or is it going to be sort of a specialized market that Apple does better than anyone else in the near term? Well, I mean, I think they'll have high optionality, right? It might just end up being a specialized market to your point. It might be the future of computing, right? If VR takes over computing, it's not going to replace the phone in my estimation. It'll be more of a replacement for a laptop. Um, now, there is an input question where having a keyboard and a mouse is still very useful for a lot of productivity ap- applications. But m- is it going to be a situation where you do just sort of sit down and this sort of big debt, like you're at, at an at work sort of thing? I mean, this has been my sort of assumption is the headset is actually more of a work device. It's sort of a sit down experience. You put it on. You're not going to want to walk around with this on, even though it is mixed reality, there's cameras so you can see around. Now Mm -hmm. there's also AR, which is this sort of like, you're just, it's, it's ambient sort of with you. But number one, I think that's still quite far away. And number two, I'm still not convinced that is going to be superior or better than the iPhone sort of just that, that's sort of with you, but we'll see. I mean, that that's, you know, the, the this space, AR, VR, mixed reality, XYZ, from my perspective, it's all VR, basically, even though both Meta's headset and this is supposed to be mixed reality. But that's just where there's yeah. cameras. And so you can see around you, which is important. It's better than just being blind, but you're still putting on a bulky headset. It's something you're mostly going to do at home. You're not going to be doing it sort of walking down the sidewalk to like there's a clear line between something you mostly do at home and something you're going to do walking down the sidewalk. And I think this is on the the home side of the line. Yeah. I, what I'm most curious about as you head to Apple on Monday, the external screen to show a wearer's facial expression. Yeah, and eyes. <laughs> I'm really not sure what we're getting into. We'll need a creepiness rating on the way out from you. Yeah, that um, feels like one of those let's talk about it after they announce it to make sure it actually exists <laughs> and what it actually looks like. Yeah, we shall see. Um, are there any other announcements that you're looking for from Apple, or is it all headset all the time this week? I mean, I'm pretty excited about the like 15-inch MacBook Air. That seems like an obvious product that should have been existed for a very long time. So that's rumored. I mean, I don't know. I like computers, so new computer announcements are always interesting. But you know, we're we're if all this entire podcast is going to be obsolete in like 48 hours. So we might as well wait until see see what actually comes out. Well, I can I just say also, if you meet anyone high up at Apple over the next few days, please pass along my compliments on the 1999 wired earpods that have been holding me down for years oh now. God. 
the best product they make. Um, one more question from Ben. He says, suppose that in a few years there will be much excess GPU capacity. If a tech company had, say, an Apple Watch on your wrist and real-time biometric data on you, then could their streaming service rewrite, rewrite music or maybe even video in real time to suit your mood and tastes with generative AI, like a live in-person human storyteller or musician? Who benefits in that world? Apple, because they make the biggest selling biometric device. Maybe Google, too. Would Netflix, Disney, Spotify, etc. be out of luck because they can't convince anybody to get a Netflix watch? I think I read about this in a Yuval Harari book. I'm not claiming this as an original idea. And Ben, I read that mainly because it's important for all of us to be in moonshot mode over the next couple of days. Let's all just dream on the possibilities and No, I'm going to crap all over it. I, okay. We, we, well, let's cross this bridge when we come to it. I'm not going to speculate I'm not interested in speculating on who's going to be like winners and losers in a hypothetical science fiction scenario. 35 I mean, years from now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, the, I mean, I don't know. I mean, like, I, I think reality is I, I do question the extent just how far are we actually interested in going when it comes to like customization, you mm -hmm. know, like, like this is a very sort of dystopian future where we're all just sort of in our, you know, with our AirPods and our headset seeing content perfectly tuned to us. And there's zero shared experiences. So <laughs> even it, among not, families, everybody yeah, watches their own thing in their own headset, which is, I mean, it's already the case to an extent. And I don't think anyone is particularly pleased about it. Right. Like there there's, so there's two points. Number one, I reject the whole premise of speculating on strategic advantage or disadvantage in a hypothetical. Number one, number okay. two, there is a philosophical sort of concern and objection to where this future is going. So to the extent we talk about it and more interested in talking about it, about let's think about what we're actually sort of going towards here. Now, certainly there's been lots of technological things that, you know, old people like me have sat around on their porches and said, that's terrible. And they've taken the market anyway, because it's, it's sort of compelling. So we'll see what will happen, but mm -hmm. you know, I, I I think this is a little bit a little bit too speculative for me. Yes, well, it cracks me up because I can see why tech people might find it exciting, and then people in entertainment and culture would just be repulsed by this idea. Like you've got on one side, like Martin Scorsese lecturing people about storytelling is supposed to be difficult, and how everybody is just having content spoon fed to them these days. And then you've got a sicko like Ben emailing in to say, one day we're going to have a AI access like the pleasure center in your brain. And it's going to write the movie for you in real time and end it however you want to end it. It's it's, like, I mean, the unfortunate reality is that uh, Ben is probably <laughs> I know. closer to like, where <laughs> we might end up. It's but, definitely closer to where we are and certainly right. where we're going. Well, I, just to sort of refine my point, I think it's interesting to talk about this scenario and where we're going. I think it's pointless to speculate on who has a strategic advantage in that world. Like, like that, that's like a, that's a, that's a mm. different, that's a different bridge to cross at a different t moment in time. Very fair. Well, could be meta that has the advantage one day, uh, lest you think that headset week is going to be only about Apple. I'll read headset from Mark Zuckerberg. Already started. It's right. It started last week, this past Thursday on Instagram. He wrote, Introducing MetaQuest 3, the first mainstream headset with high-res color, mixed reality, 
40% thinner and more comfortable, better displays and resolution, next-gen Qualcomm chipset with twice the graphics performance, our most powerful headset yet, coming this fall, starting at $499, Quest 3 will be the best way to experience mixed and virtual reality in a standalone device. It'll be compatible with Quest 2's entire library, with more titles coming, more details at our Connect conference on September 27th. So just teasing people four months in advance of uh, Meta Connect. Do you have thoughts here, Ben? Yeah, I mean, this is super lame. <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> on multiple levels. So number one, uh, you know, the Quest Pro uh, seemed like a bit of a mistake at the time. Definitely seems like a mistake now. Like, my critique that I just mentioned is I was disappointed at how low resolution it is. Well, great. Here comes a, a headset with higher resolution, uh, which they didn't say what the resolution was, by the way, which is kind of annoying. And it's going to be cheaper. Uh, hmm. But it's going to be in three months from now. And the, the year sort of – like, it's just – like, number one, I don't know what their strategy is with their products. Uh, you know, the the, the – uh, in this case, Meta's goal is supposed to be to be a social media company they theoretically should be trying to reach more people rather than fewer. So it makes sense for them, contra Apple, to be focused more on sort of low-end, lower prices, et et cetera, right? Yeah, and that present sense is perfectly fine with the resolution that's sort of in the Quest 2. Of course, Quest 3 would be better. Now, would I want to do work in the Quest 2? No, I tried it, and it was too low resolution for me. And, and, you know, so that from my personal productivity perspective, I'm more interested in the Apple thing. But if it were to come to, like, having the whole team have a headset – I could rather get four quests instead of like one mm. Apple device, right? So they're, they're, like, it makes sense for them to be sort of lower market in the extent that this product exists. But number two, there's the big question of like, to my mind, Meta's focus as a horizontal services company, again, we've already discussed this a couple episodes ago, should be all hands on deck to make the best possible Apple headset Facebook app. This whole bit about Apple and Meta being natural partners and refusing to admit to that and accept it, like Apple and Google previously, like Waymo and Uber, which took them seven years to finally realize, yeah, we should actually be partners. One of us is good at building the tech. One of us has the customer base. Like this is a natural, natural meeting. You know, ideally, Apple would be demoing this WC with the Facebook app and saying, wow, mm-hmm. you know, look at this sort of experience. But both companies are sort of, you know, not willing to do that. And it's not clear, you know, the danger here is, you know, you, you, the, the tail starts weighing the dog. Like, like, is Meta's goal in this metaverse world? Do they want to be the Apple of that world making money selling devices or they want to be the sort of social network in the world that, you know, that is where people congregate and make money sort of that way? And you you can't really serve two masters, right? Like there's a few times in history where a company could be the end all be all. The really the main one was Windows in the 90s. And this was sort of Windows was in this position where they were sort of both a monopoly and also were in the broad ecosystem and like made money vertically by like licensing their sort of operating system. And that was just a function of there was one device that do- came to dominate the world, the PC. They were sort of the operating system on that. But you could see as soon as we got different devices, 
that sort of fell apart. And a big mistake Windows made was Windows was actually more sort of a vertical business model. They made money when you bought the device. Now, they weren't selling the, the device. They were selling a license for that device. But they got so hung up in, like, for example, our applications need to come out on Windows first, and then they can be on other devices. But the reality is, is Microsoft is appropriately, and they now operate a horizontal services company. They're just on sort of the enterprise sort of side. And so their applications need to be on, they've always been on Macs. They need to be on iPhones. They need to be on on, on Android. They need to be on, on iPads and, and, and tablets and whatever else there might be. And we can't let Windows control our destiny, even though Windows did control their destiny for so long, but they got away with it because there was only Windows. There was no sort right. of alternative. And I just don't I, – it's been 10 years. I don't understand what Meta is trying to accomplish here. Like are you – they say they still want to be a horizontal services company, but what are they doing then? What's the end game for this hardware? Oh, we want to push the market forward. I think a big thing is we want to make sure Apple doesn't dominate. And the reality is, is like you have to make trade-offs at some point. Uh, obviously, Apple is a very difficult company to have a dependency on, as we've seen over the last couple of years. But there is an aspect where, yes, someone needs to fight that fight, but it's not clear it should be you. And this sort of response of, well, next week when people write their comparison articles they'll include the quest three instead of the quest two which although we're not including all the information about it it just seems kind of desperate and well it was a real whimper yeah it was unreasonably weak or inexplicably weak considering facebook's power elsewhere and how well the company is doing in so many other areas yeah if you feel confident in your product just let apple have their moment in the sun and then come out with your product and say look it's xyz it does this better it does just as good here and oh by the way it's a quarter of the price or or half the price or whatever it ends up being can i make a confession to you uh sure do you want me to turn off the recording here or no no look i'll confess live on the podcast um i'm becoming a bit of a zuck defender these days like he posted that photo on Memorial Day of him with the weighted vest, which people thought was a bulletproof vest or some sort of flak jacket. And he immediately got roasted by all of Twitter for like the ensuing 48 hours. But one person on Twitter pointed out that Zuck, as he's become more addicted to all the combat sports and everything else, He's essentially just a middle-aged guy who has adopted like a nerdy hobby and is getting way too into it. Posted a photo of his daughters working out with him too. And I, I found it all pretty endearing relative to some of the other CEO behavior we've gotten over the last couple of years. And, um, you know, as a born-again Zuck guy in the wake of that experience... Um, <laughs> I just want him to get out of this whole VR experiment. Like at some point, are they going to be able to pull the plug and walk back a lot of their commitments in this space? Like, cause the, the, the announcement last week, we're going to be rolling out a product that's probably not going to be as good as Apple still going to be $500 without a clear utility. If you're not a gamer, like this just feels like a losing proposition and they're, 
was the Wall Street Journal reporting earlier this year about how most of these headsets are just unused these days. And like the metaverse is populated sparsely, I guess would be a diplomatic way to put it. Yeah, exactly. Just like empty tumbleweeds. Um, And so I just wonder, like, why are they beating their heads against the wall? Or if it's Zuck in particular, this is a combat sport where he's just beating his head against a wall trying to make VR work. It's a it's a it's a good question. I mean, I do think he does believe in VR, right? But I I think the disconnect from my perspective is just because you believe in VR doesn't mean you're the right person to bring it to market, even if you have a cash cow that throws off billions of dollars and allows you to fund it, right? Like mm-hmm. like the, there's not necessarily the full connection there, and maybe it would be better if this VR entity was like. Why is it better being a part of Facebook? What if it was spun out, right? Like, Mark, go go, go build a... You can keep your hands in it. Yeah. yeah. He, uh, he does clearly believe in it, which I also find endearing. Yeah, no, <laughs> there is totally like, out there of is a bit with- where if, like, the meta VR stuff ends up, like, being a big deal, like, this will go down as, like, one of the all-times, what, you know, sort of just... Yeah, middle it's finger not gonna to happen. the world. Uh, <laughs> it's, sort of- it, it's already, I would say it's a valiant defeat that he's enduring right now. I, I can't imagine that it's just going to whip all the way around and Meta's going to conquer everybody at the end of all this, but maybe I'll be wrong. Um, yeah, yes. well, the, the, I just want to add one extra point. I actually really liked your observation of Zuckerberg as just sort of another middle-aged guy who, by all accounts, is like one of the most you know, sort of decent and like family oriented guys in tech. Like you hear a lot of stories about executives in tech that are uh, not particularly flattering. And like Zuck's like, yeah, he just hangs out. Like he, he, he you know, hangs, like hangs out with the wife and does running like, ultra marathons right? like, and stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and there's a bit where I, there, it, like I was on dithering, John and I were talking on dithering about like, what is like the, the corporate sort of, or what's the branding of meta, right? There, what's the consistency there? Meta's just like the normie middle-aged guy, right? That's kind of what it is. They're super competent. They like they get stuff done. They still ship, right? Like unlike sort of a Google that Google's like that, you know, the hit it big in his 30s and just like co- been like coasting like sort of years. Like mm-hmm. no, Meta is a very diligent company. You feel this in their your interactions with them, like they're always on top of the ball doing different sort of stuff. And yeah, they have this sort of hardcore like that is the face the, the sort of Meta brand identity around all their sorts of stuff. And you can like internally you could tell kind of drives them nuts cuz they want to be hip and cool and all that sort of thing. And they're they're just not. But the answer is, and you you, you talk about this in terms of like marketing or you know like advertising. Oh, you got to reach reach the kids, reach the kids. The problem is the kids don't have any spending money, right? Where you actually make the money is in the boring old suburban households that buy a bunch of stuff. That's kind of like Facebook, right? And I think there actually is a consistency between founder and company that is super competent, makes a bunch of money, and is just very not cool. And that's just sort of the reality <laughs> they have to live with. And that's okay. Uh, And, you know, we go back to like the Microsoft Xbox conversation and whether Microsoft should just pull the plug on Xbox at this point and focus on what they're great at and what they dominate at. If Microsoft should be considering pulling the plug on Xbox, I mean, Xbox is still like a relatively successful product that's well regarded. This is like 
turning meta into a punchline every six to nine months, every time they announce something new. And so I just wonder how long that cycle is going to be allowed to play out before there's some sort of pivot. Well, I mean, the reality is, is, you know, let's, let's take a gander at Meta's stock price. You know, the, the people are, were reminded that this is still a phenomenally successful company that not only is like has a, a, a durable sort of advantage as far as advertising, but actually may be extending their lead thanks mm. to sort of working through a lot of this, you know, ATT stuff and, and at least to a, more quickly to a better extent than their competitors, which, by the way, was predictable. Um and you know, hey, I guess we'll let them have their little side project. They're they're MMA <laughs> they're training. They're so good at side. everything else. Yeah, yeah. Mister Flak Jacket. Uh, well, I'll be rooting for Zuck moving forward, even if I'm not on board the uh, quest train with him. Um, to keep it moving, I'm going to clear out for you to answer some follow ups we got on Nvidia. We'll start with Bill. He says, I began wondering about whether NVIDIA can leverage a cutting-edge scale advantage into the local inference market. Much like Apple's version of a lower-cost phone was just to keep selling the old model, and TSMC can generate margins by continuing to produce using older processes, can NVIDIA's high-end data center GPUs be repurposed, perhaps first to the enterprise server market and later to the desktop or even mobile? Or are there factors other than cost, parentheses, size, power consumption, et cetera, that make these chips unsuitable for local inference? What do you think, Ben? Yeah, uh, there are plenty of factors. Like Number one, first off, these are like $15,000. Number two, their power consumption is astronomical. Their cooling needs are super huge. And the reality is... They're not particularly useful sort of in the long run because all the stuff that goes into housing them, powering them, cooling them is better spent on a more efficient chip. So I'm not sure we're at this stage yet where it's even worth keeping the old chips around in data centers because that data center space, like if you have like a a, a, a amount of like physical space in a data center and you have a given power budget and you have a given cooling budget you would rather use that to power a higher performance chip because the amount of performance you're getting for what you're Mm. spending is going to be greater, right? And so um, this idea that there might be more GPUs out there, that's very speculative just in terms of the data center. That entails a lot of build-out of data centers, and it's worth it to make huge investments in data centers and cooling and power and all those sorts of things to keep these old things, like the, the cost of a chip is a small part of the overall cost of ownership. So I actually, in some respects, I kind of threw that out there because it was interesting to think about. But even in that context, I think I was somewhat overstating it. But there's absolutely no way this can shrink down to anything less than a data center. Like you can't even run, mm. you can't really run these things locally. You can r- get an NVIDIA chip, you can get like a 4090 is their highest end sort of consumer level chip. And even that is massive. It's huge. You need a big desktop PC to put it in. You need all these sort of cooling sorts of things to go into it. And, you know, that's with, you know, that doesn't have nearly enough memory to run sort of most models as it is. Right. And then now they do have laptop chips and you and like you can imagine go down to mobile. But by and large, NVIDIA is focused on high performance. Focus uh, focus on high performance does not usually translate into high efficiency which is what you need for local inference, particularly when it comes to mobile sort of stuff. This was Intel's problem with going mobile. Intel didn't 
like there's been a lot of talk, including by me. Oh, Intel's mistake in turning down the iPhone sort of contract. I had an interview with Tony Fidel a little bit ago, and he's like, look, I, the one thing I want to get here is correct you is Intel had no chance at powering the iPhone. Their, the fundamental way in which they approach chip design, including their then X-Scale ARM unit, is they were focused first and foremost on performance. And mm. you make trade-offs when you're designing and fabricating a chip about what's actually most important. Their trade-offs were always towards performance. In the case of the iPhone, though, the first iPhone chip was actually underclocked from what it was. It was an ARM chip from Samsung. They actually underclocked because the most important thing for the phone was battery life, was efficiency. And only then could they make it as fast as they could sort of afford to keep the phone on all day. And so that led to a bunch of different decisions down the line because efficiency was number one, and only then did you care about performance. So the reality is, is NVIDIA is more like Intel in this regard. They're focused on performance, and rightly so. That's what they're good at. Where local inference is probably going to happen, this is where it's going to be very interesting to see what Apple in particular does with their chips. This is something that Qualcomm is focused on, you know, in sort of ARM, ARM generally as well, is can you make something efficient that can run inference on these models and also the development of the models? Like, how can you actually run a model locally with a limited amount of memory? And then I think the answer is going to be the sort of hybrid thing where there's going to be stuff that's local and stuff that's kicked up to the cloud. And, you know, the reality and you is expect this, those will be two different core competencies. You don't think that one company is going to be able to straddle the fence and dominate in both areas. Uh, yeah, I think that's probably going to be the case. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I have a very hard time seeing NVIDIA going, you know, being a, you know, I don't think we're going to get an NVIDIA mobile phone chip someday soon that's going to be like be running inference no they're, they're right like, and they're, they're certainly not repurposing old gpus to make it work no locally. no that's it, yeah. it, that's it, that's impossible interesting okay uh another follow-up ward says one thing i'd love to understand better is the nature of the nvidia omniverse and what sort of asset that is and might become is it possible that the omniverse could be used by nvidia to open up the markets for ai beyond the big powerful buyers who are surely going to throw massive resources into taking some or all of the NVIDIA margin. Do you have thoughts? So the Omniverse is more like it sounds, more of sort of a metaverse concept. It's sort of like building a worldwide database for metaverse sort of experiences. So you could have like, say you're you're an, you're an industrial sort of user and you want to do a layout of like a factory and you want to use, say, a particular robot, industrial robot. Well, Ideally, you don't have to make that industrial robot from scratch, that asset. There's actually a perfect representation that's already available to you, and it's available in, in NVIDIA's Omniverse, right? So you connect to that, and whoever made that put it up into there, and then you can access that. And it's sort of a way to build a common layer for building these sort of experiences. Now, right now, it's mostly focused on industrial sort of applications, but you could see it. NVIDIA has talked about sort of more consumer use cases. It's almost like an app store for VR is maybe more of a way to think about it, but it's not mm. necessarily like a store per se. It's really about sort of a, a common sort of asset base because one of the challenges, and this is going to be an issue with sort of VR generally, I, I mentioned before, Apple's going to sort of look to the developers to develop the game environment. Developing games for VR is really hard because you have so much more, there's so much more stuff to sort of generate. AI is super interesting for VR because to the extent AI can generate sort of your environment and you don't yeah. have to actually draw those by hand, like drawing textures and things along those lines, that is going to be very sort of interesting and compelling. 
So there is a natural connection between AI and VR, but Omniverse is more on this sort of industrial online 3D. Like, like NVIDIA, everything NVIDIA does comes from 3D, 3D graphics, right? That's where mm-hmm. they started. And there's like, wow, NVIDIA does 50 gazillion things. What they do is they design one core and then they like build a gazillion variations on that core, both in chips and where it's, where it's applied. And then they also do even more software on top of that. So when you talk about like self-driving car stuff or you talk about this this uh, online omniverse thing or you talk about AI, all this is manifestation of them building this vector processing unit, this graphical processing unit, and then sort of using it in lots and lots of different places and building up an entire ecosystem on top of that. Like that that's like Nvidia in some respects is actually a very simple company. It's it, but they've built this entire sort of infrastructure on top of like a common core that they just sort of build once and then sort of like apply in a bunch of different places. It's been interesting to see the narrative around NVIDIA evolve because to your point, I am not sure that they're doing anything that differently, but it's like a couple years ago, it was like NVIDIA is critical to this boom in gaming and Ethereum and everything else. And now NVIDIA is critical to AI and everything that people want to do there. And it's like the technology around them is what's changing and the emphasis that people are putting on different sectors that might explode going forward. But NVIDIA itself is just great at enabling all of this right it's this accelerated computing idea which is doing a job across multiple relatively simple cores and so ai is like that gaming is like that uh ethereum and sort of like like mining in general like again these are all very paralyzable processes the open this gets to the open question about nvidia is jensen huang would argue accelerated computing is so much more efficient it goes back to this data center issue on like your your space in a data center, your power usage, that it will actually start to take over jobs that regular CPUs do. That yeah. remains a big open question. Like, like, is that actually going to happen? I'm skeptical. I think it's going to be more of a layer on top. I do think we will see more data center build out uh, be, to take advantage of the opportunities as opposed to substitute for what's there. But we'll see. That That's sort of an open question going forward. Yes, and if nothing else, the Nvidia roller coaster over the last couple of years is oh, it's hilarious! Like it's crazy. It's, it's the, the stock is is the one of the most crazy. Things. I mean, if you stayed in it, you you've done well, you've consistently done well. But it like every it goes through these cycles where it just is crazy high, then it plummets, and then it, like this has been like the shortest one yet. Again, it was like six months ago. It was down, but this happened before, like in a very similar thing. They had a glut. They over I know like, you specified. wrote Nvidia in the valley, and now they're at the mountaintop. Again. No, but <laughs> but this is like the third or fourth valley they've been in, right? Like yeah. this is like the course of the company. The whole. I mean, Jensen Huang is a classic sell ice to an Eskimo sort of person, right? And like, like, and genuinely so. Like he's super optimistic. He absolutely has a vision for the future, but that doesn't always necessarily align with the current realities of how many units are going to be sold in the next sort of six to nine months. And so that's what you end up with these cycles where when it's going well, then people want to believe. And then they like, they, they overbuild, then they have this big inventory problem. And then there's this drawdown and X, Y, Z and the market's not ready. And uh, so this is very much par for the course. First of all, I come away from every interview you do with Jensen Wong liking him. And I know, it's, second, it's, it's, no, it's, it's, it's hard to like, so he's kind of like adopted strategy as like when he does the developer conference, he likes to come on and like talk to me about it, which is, I mean, I don't want to turn it down. It's obviously a you know very compelling and he's a great interviewer to your point. 
it's also a little sort of like scary because it's like you, you like on it's one hand you don't want to do like the Debbie Downer like dumping water on this. On the other hand, it's like you know we know Jensen. We we need some skepticism about how it's going to actually manifest in the next sort of five years, even if you're right, maybe a decade out. The reality is I think he's probably earned the deference because mm-hmm. even if NVIDIA does frequently get the short-term projections wrong, which when they're by making chip orders could get them in big trouble and they get inventory hangovers and stuff like that, the reality is is that his sort of long-term view has turned out pretty well. And even if you go back and say what they said 10 years ago, it wasn't exactly right, but it was sort of like broadly things are going in this direction and we're going to sort of like build stuff there. And then they get there and it's like, yeah, we do this all along. It's like, well, you didn't specifically say this, but you were marching the right direction and no one else is here with you. So, okay, guess I guess I got to give you credit. Yes, well, and I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but I had not even thought of the word omniverse until Ward's email. And I think it was a year or two ago, omniverse was like a central theme of one of the interviews you did. No, with it's, it, Wong. it's a perfect example. It's like, yeah, that's what they, that's what he wanted to talk about. And then like, no, no, AI, and AI all the he time. he sold me. He sold <laughs> yeah. me for the record in the moment. And now here we are a year and a half later. It's like, all right, well, maybe that'll make a dent one day. Who knows? Um Odds and ends as we close things out here. Uh, Just a programming note. Again, Ben's going to be at the Apple event. If anyone is following the event Monday and has questions for us, you can send them to email at sharptech.fm. We'll try to go through them on the recap podcast, part two of Headset Week, as we continue the celebration here. And maybe we'll get some Zuck follow-up, too. Who knows? Uh, Three questions, though, at the end. First, Tony says, the first syllable of Bally Sports is pronounced like balance, not like the last syllable of baseball. Here's a video of official Bally Sports promo so you can hear it for yourself. Ben, this is, I think, your most legendary mispronunciation. No, here's the reality. I I know. You don't need to tell me, Tony. I am aware <laughs> of how it is supposed to be pronounced. I am physically incapable of pronouncing it that way. I'm from Wisconsin. Sue me. I pronounce mm. all my A's wrong in almost every single word. It is a very distinct local dialect, and you're just going to have to deal with it. So there you go. Okay. Yes. You pronounce it like Bali for anyone curious. And I say out bank there. and tank and bag and all <laughs> bunch of like all my A's are all screwed up. I'm, I'm aware. I, I used to teach English at this school that was super strict and like, you know, basically the idea was if these kids are going to be forced to take English classes, we're going to like make sure they actually learn English. And so, like the they were super strict on like pronunciation and how you had to say stuff. And I got my I, not in trouble per se, but it drove the boss bonkers at my inability <laughs> to say this particular a sound correctly. And yeah. look, that was when my my livelihood is on the line. Uh, I guess it technically is here as well. But I mean, I'm sorry. No, like, no, no, I, no. Take no, the no. acknowledgement. It, it, I know I'm saying it wrong. And just accept it. So sorry. Listen, mispronunciations are one of our core. No, no, this is most of the, the most of the mispronunciations are like are mispronunciation. This is a this is a uh, you're insulting my culture sort of uh, <laughs> oh, issue. <wow>. So. <laughs> Apologize, Tony. That's we right, Tony. I want to. I want to. Sorry. <laughs> um, Patrick from Chicago says, "I couldn't believe my ears hearing Ben fired up about cable bill savings since I was listening while in the middle of calculating how much I'd save if I got rid of cable. I pay for pretty much every streaming service and cable TV with a DVR, and with my property taxes shooting up suddenly, I need to make some tough choices. Parentheses, don't worry, I couldn't live without this trajectory bundle." My cable and internet bill has ballooned to $270 a month. 
Back in June 2020, it was $162 a month. Obviously, I still need internet to function. So if I stick with Xfinity, it looks like 800 megabytes per second internet is going to cost $150 a month. I'm more likely to switch to AT&T Fiber, which will run $80 a month. So cutting cable will save me approximately $170 a month or $2,040 a year. So yes, the savings of $2,000 a year isn't that far off base. I will lament the loss of watching the White Sox and HGTV, parentheses, pro bro, pro bros for life, but that's about it. More than anything, I can't believe I paid $2,000 a year for the White Sox, House Hunters, and Law and & Order reruns. And the moral of the story there is that we should never underestimate cable companies ability to rip people off and i'm sure there are lots of listeners out there who could save a similar amount of money per year if they got rid of cable okay so a few things uh number one uh maybe okay i pay for cable in wisconsin maybe it's just cheaper there this 270 dollars is is mind-blowing um uh number two Definitely switch to fiber. Fiber is better than cable. It, you know, it's oh one my of my God, great it's regrets. So much better. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I got you to switch. I my place in, in in Wisconsin does not have fiber. It is very annoying. Upload speed matters. That's the that's sort of the the, the, the moral of the story. I, not uh, only that, canceling your Xfinity cable is one of the most satisfying calls you will have in your entire life. So I encourage you to go that direction if you haven't already, Patrick. Yes. Uh, number three. He says he's going to save $170 a month, but he said, I pay for pretty much every streaming service and cable TV. So where is the cost for the streaming service in this calculation? The cable TV is 270. So he's saving 170 by going with fiber. Where's the cost for the streaming services like that? That I, I'm just a little I'm, I'm a little confused uh I, I don't know this this basically this whole discussion has gone off the rails completely i will grant <laughs> to patrick uh i don't know how it costs 270 dollars um but the I, I think it's very viable and i i'm not surprised actually because i will w- read disney earnings every time and until last quarter they were still making more on cable than they were every month because rate increases were outpacing subscriber losses we know subscriber losses have been huge, so these rate cre- increases must have been fairly out of control. So I will grant the point that uh, it probably is more savings than I had in the back of my head, number one. Number two, like once you actually calculate the internet costs and if you want to sign up for every streaming services, you're going to be close to like $200 a it's, month. It's in the same ballpark. Now, There's the no problem, question. Now, the problem for the cable companies is, to his point, and this is where I do agree with Patrick, there's no reason to get cable other than sports. Like that is a huge problem. This gets to our overall critique, which is they destroyed the value of the cable bundle themselves. They did it to themselves. They took all their shows off and put it on streaming services and like trusted sports to carry the day. And the reality is that they killed the golden goose and, you know, to the emailers point sort of last time. Yes. One of the, the biggest winners of this are people who don't watch sports for sure. And the biggest losers are people who do watch sports because you're, if you want sports, you're going to pay for it and you're going to pay more because it's only you paying. It's not sort of everyone sort of paying for it. So, uh, I, I, Maybe I have to go and calculate the numbers uh, myself. I, you know, I think regardless, you are going to save money. Most of that mm. money is going to be because of sports. So I think we can all we can all agree that we're all in the same ballpark here, <laughs> without getting into specific numbers. 
And you know why I read this email from Patrick? It was because of the parenthetical where he said, pro bros for life. And I just really cracked me up. I hope that we could hear from more Property Brothers enthusiasts out there who want to stand arm in arm with Ben as proud HGTV heads. Yeah, um, well, I mean, my, the, my other cable TV show is uh, is is Top Chef, which uh, Padma is leaving after 20 oh, years. Oh, man. Condolences. Might, might need to cut the cord. I'm just going to be totally honest with you. <laughs> is this worse than the Bucks loss for you? Uh, no, nah, I did. That's like the, the one, like me and my daughter have watched every single Top Chef episode like ever. So it's very meaningful in that regard. But um, but no, I'll be okay. I'll, I'll, okay. I'll survive. All right. Final question. Anthony says, you guys have talked a lot about the Stratechery business model recently. Frankly, I've always felt Stratechery is ludicrously underpriced, and I've always felt a little guilty paying only $120 a year for such great content, particularly after the rollout of the bundle. So my question is, Ben's mentioned a few times that if he commented directly on stock valuations, he'd charge a heck of a lot more for the newsletter. Would Ben ever think about providing an ultra premium tier of Stratechery that publishes, say, once a month with more explicit investment ideas? What do you think? Uh, no, that, that's mostly a joke, uh, which I've probably overused because I'm overexposed thanks to the bundle. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, no, the, the reality is, is if you're doing that, uh, number one, you, you need to do the work to actually go through and justify it, right? It's one thing to say this is – it's like Jensen Huang, right? To say the broad general direction of where you're going is one thing. To actually properly sort of forecast the number of GPUs you're going to order from TSMC for nine months down the road is a, is a completely mm. different thing, right? Now, he has to do both because he's a CEO. If I were doing that, though, number one, I would not be giving out stock tips. I would open up my own investment fund, and I would take I would, I would do it myself, right, just to be, like, super clear. That was not an option when I started. It's a shame because I would have made a lot of money, I feel like, over the last <laughs> decade. But I was, you know, I was a scrub. I was just starting out with no audience, no whatever. So this worked for me. Um, but, yeah, no, if I was giving out if I was giving out stock tips, I would be – running a fund like that i would that that's exactly how i would do it and it would not be compatible with what i do today just from a, i don't have enough bandwidth like like and you know just to sort of do all that sort of stuff uh, i do think strategy is probably um you know too low uh but i've been interested in expanding the market generally i'm interested in sort of having reach sort of having an impact there's things that motivate me beyond sort of maximizing my revenue again if i want to maximize revenue i should probably open a fund and like and go go in that regard uh and you know never say never but i enjoy doing what i'm what i'm doing now uh i live my wife is comfortable i definitely make enough to sort of like have a have, have a great life and i you know it depends what you optimize for what do you sort of put at the top of the stack and quality of life and the ability to spend time with my family and to go to cigar night and to do those mm. sorts of things are super important Touch to and me grass. and yeah. to not have like in the back of my mind knowing i have you know hundreds of millions or billions of dollars on particular stock bets is not is not the sort of stress <laughs> that i want right now and if you want to say that's me chickening out and not sort of talking my book that's fair on the other hand by virtue of being in public of trying to maximize my audience I'm putting a different sort of thing on the line, sort of yeah. like my ongoing reputation. And and so 
there's pluses and minuses to both. I actually don't mind that critique. I respect it. I understand it. I think it's uh, undervalues what my actual business is and what I am risking and not risking. But um, but yeah, we'll see. I mean, the reality is, is strictly, you know, they're probably probably, you know, overdue to probably raise prices at some point. I raised prices once. Uh, you know, every time back to the U.S., I'm like, yes, there is a lot of inflation. So I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens. But um, but I enjoy reaching a lot of people, and I'm glad you feel you've gotten a lot of value. And I don't look at it as, oh, look at all that extra money I could have gotten. It's just not the way I think, and, and that's fine. Yes. Well, we get some variation of that question every few weeks, and I appreciate that Anthony feels like he's getting a good value from Sertekri, and he said that tries to pay it forward by buying gift subscriptions for friends and family. That's what all of our listeners should be doing here. And you talk about bandwidth. Man, oh man, great performance from you after a 12-hour flight. What's the what's the time from uh the other side of the world? Uh it's actually much fa- this is it's much faster coming here because uh you come here the like the route are super funny because they're always different. What they do is they fly into the jet stream, then they fly with the jet stream, and then you know dip down to sort of come and in. Zoom. No, so it's like a two hour difference. So like coming here will be like ten and a half hours. Going to the west coast, going back is like twelve and a half hours or, or thirteen mm. hours. It's it's a it's a pretty drastic difference. So it's actually in some respects, uh, it's it's I don't like the coming here flight because it almost feels too short. It's like I kind of <laughs> like I don't want the, you know the uh, I just I just fell asleep wondering waking it up. So um, but no, it's well, all good. I would say get some sleep, but I have no idea what your sleep. No, I'm wide awake now. Like, I, I am, yeah. I'm going to be working on Monday's update. That is that is the plan for the next few hours. There you go. Well, live your best life. And Ben, we are going to come back later this week. Can't wait to find out how creepy the external eyes are on the headset. <laughs> I mean, and- maybe Mark Zuckerberg is going to have the, the last laugh, literally. He could. He could. My guy, Zuck. Um, all right. On that note, we'll come back later in the week. Email at sharptech.fm if listeners have questions and we'll keep it rolling. Talk to you later. <laughs>